So good morning and welcome to our webinar today on underclaimed tax. My name is Lisa Rolls and for those who don't know me, I'm an Associate Director and Tax Specialist here at Seymour Taylor. I'm joined today by my client manager and fellow tax specialist, Gavin Stiles, and together we're going to be looking at a number of areas where tax is often underclaimed. The areas today that we'll be looking at are capital expenditure, research and development, land remediation relief, dividends, investments, and personal tax. There are potentially billions of pounds worth of tax relief that go unclaimed every year, often because people aren't aware that they are eligible for them or that they even exist. Today, Gavin and I are going to cover some of the reliefs, credits and allowances out there for businesses and individuals to take advantage of. Our aim for this webinar is to help you to retain more of the money you or your company earn. As always, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. So pop these in the Q&A as we go along. And at the end, once we've completed the presentation, we'll answer any questions you may have within the time allowed. So the first area that I'm going to look at is capital expenditure. As you can see from the slide, there are a number of different types of allowances that are potentially available, which will depend on the type of expenditure incurred, along with when it was incurred and how much was spent. Capital expenditures are funds which are used by a company to acquire and upgrade physical assets, such as property, plant machinery, buildings, technology or equipment. This type of financial outlay is made by companies to increase the scope of their operations or add some economic benefit to the business. There are normally two forms of capital expenditures. Firstly, expenses to maintain levels of operation present within the company. And secondly, expenses that will en enable an increase in future growth. A capital expense can be either tangible, such as machinery, or intangible, such as patents. Both intangible and tangible capital expenditures are usually considered assets since they can be sold when there is a need. It's important to note that funds spent on repairs or in conducting continuing normal maintenance on assets is not considered capital expenditure, and so should be expensed to the income statement whenever it is incurred as a repair and maintenance expense. The rules are very specific on what does and does not qualify for capital allowances. Decisions on how much to invest in capital expenditures can often be extremely vital for an organisation. Capital allowances are the tax equivalent of depreciation. So companies can choose their own depreciation rates, whereas capital allowances will align all businesses to the same rates. Capital allowances are available in respect of qualifying capital expenditure incurred on the provision of certain assets in use for the purpose of a trade or a rental business. They effectively allow a taxpayer to write off the cost of an asset over a period of time. And the benefits of claiming are that you can claim an immediate tax benefit, reduce or completely shelter a tax liability, improve cash flow and keep it in your business, or potentially a possible cash refund or a repayment of taxes. So who can claim? Well, if you built or bought a property or incurred capital expenditure on plant machinery that is in use for the purpose of a trade or a rental business, you can probably claim some form of relief. We can assist in reviewing expenses incurred to ascertain what does and does not qualify for capital allowances and any other reliefs. Our experience has shown that capital allowance claims are often understated. This results in taxpayers leaving behind valuable tax and cash savings. We can help to rectify this situation and identify your full entitlement. The area of capital allowances is quite complex, and so entitlement must be established and qualifying expenditure must be properly identified. However, there is no approved list of qualifying items of plant machinery. So whether an item qualifies for capital allowances must be determined by reference to the facts. It is necessary to satisfy a number of conditions established primarily through case law and HM Revenue and Customs precedents. 
The revenue frequently audit capital allowance claims, and it is therefore really important to ensure your claim is fully compliant and there is sufficient evidence or documentation available to support your claim. Some examples of the experience we have in preparing claims are plant machinery analysis, along with separate plant machinery analysis for research and development tax credit claims, energy efficient capital allowance claims, which could result in a 100% claim, look back claims with a potential repayment of tax, negotiating claims with HM Revenue and Customs, and also landlord works. As this is a complex technical area of tax, it is not uncommon for errors in claims to be made, resulting in over or underclaimed capital allowances. An incorrect claim could be a result of a number of matters, such as not having sufficient documentation or not knowing that a tax relief even exists. If an underclaim has been made and it is recent, then there is an opportunity to rectify it. However, if you have overclaims, the implications could be far-reaching, depending on how the error was found, whether it was by yourself or by HM Revenue and Customs. The potential implications are interest, penalties, and in extreme cases, publication on the list of tax defaulters. I'm now going to look at a couple of reliefs in particular. The Annual Investment Allowance, known as the AIA, is a form of tax relief for businesses that is designated for the purchase of business equipment. The AIA allows a business to deduct the total amount of qualifying capital expenditure up to a certain limit from its taxable profits in a given tax year. You can claim AIA on most plants and machinery up to the AIA amount. If your business buys a piece of equipment that qualifies for the annual investment allowance, you can deduct 100% of the cost of that asset from your business's profit before you work out how much tax is due on that profit. The government sets a limit for how much the annual investment allowance is that a business can claim in a year, which means that if you buy assets costing more than the limit, you won't be able to claim the annual investment allowance on all your assets. The limit was previously £200,000, but in January 2019, it was temporarily increased to a million pounds. This new limit will be in effect until the 1st of January 2022, when the rates are due to revert back to £200,000. If your business is registered for VAT, you claim the annual investment allowance on the net amount after reclaiming VAT. However, if your business is not registered for VAT, you claim the annual investment allowance on the total cost of the asset. There are certain items that you cannot claim the annual investment allowance on, and these are cars, items that you've owned for another reason before you started using them in your business, items that were given to you or your business, or items that you were claiming the writing down allowance on instead. The annual investment allowance has changed several times since April 2008 when it was introduced. So if the AIA changed in the period you're claiming for, you need to adjust the amount you can claim. As an example, if you have a company with a year end of the 31st of March 2022, you will straddle two periods. The amount you are entitled to in total is £800,000, this being 9 twelfths of the million pounds and 3 twelfths of £200,000. However, the timing of the £800,000 is very important, as you only qualify for £50,000 worth of relief in the three months to 31st of March 2022. The next area that I'm going to touch on is the new super deduction, which was introduced at the budget earlier this year. The budget brought in a new first year capital allowance for qualifying plant and machinery assets and for qualifying special rate assets. Special rate pool items are generally assets in relation to integral features in a property, such as air conditioning and hot and cold water systems, long life assets and thermal insulation. 
From the 1st of April 2021 until the 31st of March 2023, companies investing in qualifying new plant and machinery assets will be able to claim a 130% super deduction capital allowance on qualifying plant and machinery investments, or a 50% first year allowance for qualifying special rate assets. The super deduction will allow companies to cut their tax bill by up to 25 pence for every one pound they invest, ensuring that the UK capital allowances regime is amongst the world's most competitive. The government has offered unprecedented support for businesses during COVID. Even so, pandemic-related economic shocks and the accompanying uncertainty have chilled business investment. This super deduction will encourage firms to invest in productivity-enhancing plant and machinery assets that will help them grow and to make these investments now. Please visit our website or contact one of us to find out more. On this next slide, you will see an example of how the super deduction works in practice. This example is exaggerated to show the effects, but does give you a good indication of how it will work and the importance of timings. So if you have a business which was to spend £5 million just one day apart on either 31st of March 2021 or the 1st of April 2021, they would be able to take advantage of the super deduction and would save themselves tax and therefore cash of just over £900,000. The next area I'm going to move on to is looking at research and development claims. As a business, we support clients in a variety of sectors in claiming their research and development tax credits. Back in April 2000, HMRC launched the Research and Development Tax Relief Scheme specifically to reward UK businesses making scientific and technological developments as it is an enhanced um, in the UK. This is an enhanced claim and as such it qualifies and is counted as notifiable state aid. Since its introduction almost over 20 years ago now, many companies who could be eligible are still failing to claim this valuable relief. Research and development tax relief, or R&D tax relief as it's known, can be a relief or a credit and is a company tax. This means that it can either reduce the company's tax bill or for some companies provide a cash refund. Research and development credits are available to large, small and medium sized companies. Depending on whether the company has taxable profits, these can result in a cash refund repayment for the company, which could help with cash flow, particularly when turnover may be minimal. To qualify for R&D tax credit, a company must be a carrying on a project that seeks an advance in science or technology. It is necessary to state what the intended advance is and to show how, through the resolution of scientific or technological uncertainties, the project seeks to achieve this. The advance being sought must constitute an advance in the overall knowledge or capability in a field of science or technology, not just that of the company alone. Under the SME regime, the R&D tax credit works by allowing companies an increased deduction in respect of qualifying expenditure on R&D activities. The enhanced deduction either reduces a company's profit or increases its losses for tax purposes. It is also, <laughs> it is also possible to cash in or surrender losses for a repayment. Any businesses in any sector is eligible for R&D tax credits as long as they are undertaking development activities that lead to a progression in science or technologies. The key benefits of an R&D tax credit are it's a reliable way to raise business funding, claims can be made annually, it can help businesses by improving their cash flow, it can help businesses to support their growth, and it can be very attractive to investors. 
So what counts as research and development expenditure? Direct and externally provided staff, subcontracted R&D, consumables, software, trials, prototyping, and also independent research costs may all qualify for R&D relief. First, I'm going to look at direct R&D staff costs. Your company can claim for salaries, wages, class one national insurance contributions, and also pension fund contributions for staff directly and actively engaged in the R&D project. This covers employees who undertake hands-on R&D and the proportion of supervisory and managerial time spent specifically directing such employees in those activities. When looking at support staff costs, for example, admin or clerical staff, these do not qualify specifically. However, they do qualify when they relate to qualifying indirect activities. The one area you cannot claim for in relation to is in relation to employment related benefits. When looking at subcontracted costs and externally provided R&D staff, these are the staff costs paid to an external agency for staff who are directly and actively engaged in the R&D project. Relief is usually given on 65% of the payments made to the staff provider. Special rules do apply if the company and the staff provider are connected or they elect to be connected. Your company may also claim for the cost of software that is directly employed in the R&D activity. When software is only partly employed in direct R&D, an appropriate apportionment should be made. Finally, consumable items. Your company can claim for the cost of items that are directly employed and consumed in qualifying R&D projects. These include materials and the proportion of water, fuel and power consumed in the R&D process. Since April 2015, the cost of materials incorporated in products that are sold are not eligible for relief. There are, however, a number of costs which do not qualify and you cannot receive R&D relief for. These include the production and distribution of goods and services, the cost of land, capital expenditure, such as plant machinery. There is, however, a separate 100% research and development allowance, which may be due on capital assets, such as plant machinery and buildings, which are used specifically for R&D activity. You could also have payments for the use and creation of patents and trademarks. These are not qualifying as these are for the cost of protecting the completed R&D. There is, however, potential patent box relief. However, this is not being covered today. HMRC has two schemes available for claiming tax relief. The small or medium sized enterprise scheme, otherwise known as the SME scheme, and the research and development expenditure credit scheme, otherwise known as RDEC. Since its launch, more than 300,000 claims have been made, totaling more than £33.3 billion in tax relief. To be considered an SME by HMRC for these purposes, your business must have less than 500 staff and either a turnover of under €100 million Euros or a balance sheet total of under €86 million. Euros. These limits apply to your whole corporate group if you are part of one. If you are very close to the limits, there are also transitional rules for moving between the SME regime and the large RDEC scheme. The SME R&D tax relief allows companies to deduct an extra 130% of their qualifying costs from their yearly profit, as well as the normal 100% deduction to make a total 230% deduction. So for example, if a business spends 10,000 pounds on qualifying R&D expenditure, Within the tax computation, they will be entitled to an additional £13,000 worth of relief, resulting in total relief of £23,000. The tax relief obtained on the £23,000 is £4,370, 
which equates to a tax rate of 43.7% on the initial qualifying expenditure. If the company is loss-making, you can instead claim a repayable tax credit. This can be worth up to 14.5% of the surrenderable loss, which could result in a tax relief of 33.35%. While the R&D tax credit scheme is a tax relief, its benefits are numerous. For example, the recovered funds do not have to be used in a specified way, so can be reinvested into further R&D, or be used for purchasing new machinery, materials or technologies, or invested to generally help business growth. It can also help an SME to survive an economic downturn or a rough patch in the business, especially important post the COVID-19 pandemic. R&D tax credits can bring in large sums of money, which can be used to increase your capital runway, clear outstanding debt, and invest in skilled staff or further R&D projects to continue the investment cycle. R&D expenditure credit, the RDEC, replaced the large company scheme in April 2016. It works in a very different way to the SME scheme as the credit is entered into the financial statements of a company. The RDEC must be claimed by a business that qualifies as large, but in some circumstances will also be claimed by SMEs who have either been subcontracted to do R&D work by a large company or who have received a grant or subsidy for their R&D project. The credit is calculated at 13% of your company's qualifying R&D expenditure if the expenditure was incurred on or after the 1st of April 2020, and this amount is taxable. Different rates applied prior to April 2020 and were either 12% or 11%, depending on when the expenditure was incurred. Depending on if your company is profit or loss making, the credit may be used to discharge the liability or result in a cash payment. The RDEC itself is a tax credit, and you can make a claim up to two years after the end of the accounting period that it relates to. In order to calculate your RDEC, you need to firstly work out the costs that were directly attributable to R&D, and then for those which are in relation to subcontractor costs or externally provided workers, reduce the payments down to 65% of their original cost. Once you have a total, you then most multiply this figure by 13% to get the expenditure credit. This number is then entered into the financial statements as a credit to the profit and loss account. This credit is taxable, and so at this stage, you are currently increasing your tax liability. However, when the tax liability is calculated at 19%, you then have the opportunity to reduce the liability by the amount you had previously entered as a credit to the accounts. So in order to be able to provide to make a claim to HMRC, you need to provide a short summary that explains how the project meets HMRC's definition of R&D. As a reminder, these are the project looked for an advance in science or technology, and so the report needs to show how your project aims to achieve this advance. Secondly, the project had to overcome scientific or technological uncertainty, and again, how you overcame this uncertainty. And finally, it could not easily be worked out by a professional in that field. Additional changes were brought in from April this year, meaning that the refund amount is capped at three times the company's POYE and national insurance contribution payments made during the year. If you go above that figure, the excess is carried forward for tax relief at a future point in time, so it's not all lost. The rules are very strict as to how the credit is used, and there is a seven-step order of how to utilise it. I realise that there's a lot of information to take on board at this stage, and it's typically why a lot of clients choose to work with a firm like us to help them navigate this process. I mentioned earlier that the R&D relief is classified as notifiable state aid, and that any other claims during the year may impact your claim. So 
in terms of what is notifiable state aid, it's the SME relief that is notifiable state aid. Therefore, if any funding is also a notifiable state aid, then you cannot claim SME tax relief for the entire project. You will, however, still be able to claim under the RDEX scheme. If a grant or subsidy is not notifiable state aid, then SME relief is available on the unfunded elements. COVID-19 funding has resulted in impact on R&D claims. HMRC have said that the, con the company's concerns over delays in payments to R&D claims is understandable, and many businesses have been impacted by the pandemic, both operationally and at sales level, and need access to funds more than ever. HMRC are aiming to maintain their target of processing 95% of R&D claims within 28 days of them being filed, and they are prepared to invest in additional resources if they need to. Furthermore, if businesses are experiencing operational difficulties due to the pandemic that prevents them from filing an R&D claim on time, then HMRC have said that they will consider giving extensions to claims providing they meet certain criteria. One item which is likely to come up more often than others at this point in time is in relation to the furlough scheme. If you had an R&D employee on full-time furlough, then you will not be able to claim for their costs as they were not actively engaged in R&D work. This is an easy area for businesses to miss as the expense and the credit for the furlough costs are not netted off within the profit and loss account, and so care does need to be taken. Another question we have been asked is in relation to whether a business can apply for a C-bill which is the coronavirus business interruption loan, and also file an R&D claim at the same time. The government have, has confirmed that C-bills and B-bills, the bounce back interruption loans, are both notifiable state aid. As mentioned before, one of the requirements of the R&D tax relief under the SME scheme is that no other notified state aid is received for the same project. However, it's not quite as straightforward as that because it all depends on why the loan was applied for. If it was said to be helped to fund an R&D project, then the loan is considered as notified state aid. And in this situation, SME relief would not be available. But if nothing was mentioned about how the loan was going to be used, it may be possible if the C-bills loan was for general business purposes and not spent on project costs. If you've got any areas, uh, questions in this area, please do get in touch. I thought it might be helpful just to run through a couple of examples as to how this works. So here we have SME Limited, which is an SME. It has taxable profits of £400,000 for the year ended 31st of March 2020. And included within this is £60,000 of qualifying R&D expenditure. Without claiming the relief, the corporation tax liability is £76,000. However, if the company were to claim the R&D enhancement of £78,000, the company tax, um, company tax liability is reduced down to £61,180. This is creating a tax saving of £14,820 for the company. On the next slide, we have Repayable Limited, which is also an SME. However, this company has a tax loss for the year of £200,000. And included within this is, again, £60,000 of qualifying R&D expenditure. Without claiming the relief, the company has losses carried forward of £200,000, which could create a future tax benefit of £38,000. However, if the company claimed the enhancement of £78,000, they would have an increased loss for the year of £278,000. They would then have the option of how to use this. They could surrender the R&D element of the loss of £138,000 for a repayable tax credit of £20,000. 
they would then still have a loss carried forward of £140,000 with a potential future benefit of £26,000. Alternatively, they could carry forward the entire loss of £278,000 with a potential future benefit of £52,820. Most companies choose to take the cash now of £20,000. You do end up reducing the overall benefit of the loss. However, cash is better for many than a future potential saving of only an extra 4.5%. So in order to make a claim, you need to complete additional disclosures within your tax computation and your Form CT600, as well as potentially adjustments to your accounts if you're claiming under the RDEX scheme. You can make a backdated claim if your company has been undertaking qualifying R&D and has not claimed R&D relief yet. If you make a backdated claim within the anniversary of your filing date, which is generally two years after the end of your accounting period. When making a claim, you will also need to provide to HMRC a report justifying why you were claiming along with details of the calculation. The justification report gives a summary of the R&D project undertaken and explains how the project is R&D within the tax relief definition. The main focus of the report is to show the advances being sought and the uncertainties faced rather than just a description of the finalised product. On this next slide, I've put together some key questions that would be helpful to consider if you are thinking of applying for R&D relief. Firstly, have you developed your own software? Secondly, have you developed internal processes that reduce costs and improve production time? Do you carry out any design work that enhances technology? Are you in the business of manufacturing products? Are you using existing technologies in a unique way? Are you combining two or more existing technologies in a way that have never previously been used? And finally, do you have any pending patents or products or services that could qualify? The next area I'm going to move on to is land remediation relief. Land remediation relief is a tax deduction often not claimed by smaller property developers and investors, and the claiming of it can result in a tax reduction or a cash credit from HMRC. If land remediation relief is available, then a company will benefit from an uplift of 50% of the costs of the repairs, including the cost of any surveys, preparatory works, or potentially a cash credit from HMRC. Qualifying costs for land remediation relief include the following. Remediation of contaminated land, removal of asbestos from buildings, breaking out buried structures and the treatment of harmful organisms and naturally occurring contaminants, such as Japanese knotweed, radon, or arsenic. Also, any pollution from previous industrial activity, for example, heavy metal contaminants from industrial processes. The benefits of land remediation relief are that it can provide a tangible cash saving, in particular with a 150% owner-occupier rate is claimed. Land remediation relief is often not maximised as it must be actively claimed. If the savings are factored into appraisals at a bid stage, prospective bidders may be able to enhance their bid accordingly. By way of an example, a client of ours was looking to expand their warehouse and upon a survey found that there was asbestos within the roof and costs to repair were going to be £250,000. By claiming a deduction for the enhanced relief, an additional deduction from the taxable profits of £125,000 could be obtained. This then saved them £23,750 in corporation tax. As an alternative, if the company had been loss-making, then they could have obtained a cash credit from HMRC of up to a maximum of £60,000. This being the enhanced tax saving of £23,750, plus the original cost at the tax rate of 19%, which equals 47500 
As you can see, the potential savings are large, and so it's well worth being aware and having a trusted advisor on hand to assist you. My colleague Suzanne should hopefully have put some links in the chat box to our website with details of our blogs and case studies that I've mentioned. The next topic is going to be dividends, and so I'm going to pass over to Gavin at this stage. Thank you, Lisa. This section of the webinar is targeted more at individuals and is certainly worth sharing with relatives and employees. As you are already aware, dividends are a way of companies rewarding their investors for taking the risk in investing in them. Dividends can be paid from companies to companies, but for the purposes of this section, we will focus on dividends being paid from companies to individuals. There are separate rules for dividends paid to companies, and if you would like additional information, please don't hesitate to contact Lisa or myself after the webinar. It is possible to earn dividend income each year without paying tax on them. This will, however, depend on your personal circumstances. But as an example, dividends falling within the unused personal allowance are not taxed, and dividends falling within the dividend allowance are also taxed at 0%. UK taxpayers are entitled to a dividend allowance of £2,000 per tax year. Anything in excess of the dividend allowance is taxed at the taxpayer's marginal rate of tax, which could be 7.5%, 32.5% or 38.1%, depending on whether you're a basic rate taxpayer, higher rate taxpayer or additional rate taxpayer. But generally speaking, dividends are taxed at a lower rate than other non and savings income. The dividend allowance was specifically brought in for the 2016-17 tax year and at that point the allowance was £5,000. This partially counteracted the removal of the old dividend tax credit that used to apply to dividends. Additionally, income from investments in ISAs, whether a standard ISA or a stocks and shares ISA, is exempt from income tax. The level of income tax payable each year depends on various factors and includes firstly, how much of your income is in excess of your personal allowance, whether your income exceeds the £100,000 threshold, at which point you begin to lose your personal allowance, and how much of your income falls within each tax band. As mentioned previously, some income can be exempt from income tax. As a quick reminder, the current tax year is from the 6th of April 2021 to the 5th of April 2022. Tax returns for the 2020-21 tax year are due for filing and payment by the 31st of January 2022. The standard personal allowance is £12,570 for the 21-22 tax year. This means that on the first £12,570 of taxable income, there is no income tax payable. As an example, let's say you work part-time and that you earn £1,000 per month. In essence, you would earn £12,000 per year and no tax would be payable. You could also be entitled to a larger personal allowance if you have claimed the marriage allowance or are entitled to the blind person's allowance. More on these later. Equally, as mentioned previously, your personal allowance could be reduced or abated where your income is in excess of £100,000. 
As you can see from this slide, the taxation of dividends is more favourable than that of other savings, such as bank interest and non-savings income, such as employment, self-employment income and partnership profits. Additionally, the rates for dividends are more favourable than those for savings and non-savings income, as mentioned earlier. It is important to note that the income is taxed on a cumulative basis and also in a certain order. It is, however, possible to allocate the personal allowance in whichever way you seem fit. The savings allowance. Most people can earn some interest, wherever that's possible, from their savings without having to pay income tax. UK taxpayers are entitled to various allowances, including the personal allowance if this has not already been utilised by any non-savings income, i.e. salary, benefits, pension income, partnership and sole trade profits. There is also a starting rate set for savings, whereby if you have non-savings income of less than £5,000, the balance up to £5,000 is taxed at 0%. You are not eligible for the starting rate for savings if your other income is £17,570 or more. This is the equivalent of the £5,000 starting rate and the personal allowance. Let's consider an example where you earn a salary of £15,000 and bank interest, otherwise savings income, of £4,000. The first £12,570 of your salary will be covered by your personal allowance. The remaining £2,430 will reduce your savings allowance from £5,000 to £2,570. Of the £4,000 savings income, £2,570 will be taxed at 0%, leaving £1,430 to be taxed at 20%. In this scenario, the individual has managed to earn £15,140 of income taxed at 0%. In addition to this, UK taxpayers are entitled to what is known as the personal savings allowance. This is £1,000 for basic rate taxpayers, £500 for higher rate taxpayers and nil for additional rate taxpayers. As previously discussed, you could also be entitled to a dividend allowance of £2,000. There are also additional tax-free allowances for the first £1,000 of income from self-employment, otherwise known as the trading allowance, and also the first £1,000 of income from property you rent out. The blind person's allowance is added to your personal allowance. The blind person's allowance was £2,500 for the 2020-21 tax year and is currently £2,520 for the 2021-22 tax year. This would therefore entitle you to a personal allowance of £15,000 for the 2020-21 tax year or £15,090 for the 2021-22 tax year. If you and your spouse or civil partner are both eligible, then you will both be entitled to the blind person's allowance. It's not a case of one per household. It is also possible to transfer your blind person's allowance to your spouse or civil partner if you do not pay tax or you have any remaining personal allowance left over. I will now move on to the married couple's allowance. Tax relief on the married couple's allowance is given at 
This means that the higher earning partner gets 10% off of the tax they pay. The married couple's allowance could reduce your tax bill by between £350 and £915 per tax year, depending on your circumstances. There are, however, strict qualifying criteria to meet as follows. Firstly, you must be married or in a civil partnership. Second, you must be living with your spouse or civil partner. And finally, one of you must have been born before the 6th of April 1935. I will now move on to capital gains tax and more specifically, the annual exemption. As a brief introduction to capital gains tax, this is a tax due on the profit when you sell or dispose of something that has increased in value. It is the gain which you make that is taxed and not the amount of money you receive. By way of an example, let's say that you bought a painting for £5,000 and later sold it for £25,000. This would result in a gain of £20,000. The sale of some assets are tax-free and you are entitled to a tax-free allowance known as the annual exemption of £12,300 per year. In this scenario, the individual would be taxed on £7,700, being the gain of £20,000 less the annual exemption of £12,300. The list of assets on which you would need to pay CGT are endless, but as a brief summary, anything worth more than £6,000 apart from your car, a property that isn't your main home or residence, shares that are not in an ISA or PEP wrapper, and if you sell or give away crypto assets, you should also think as to whether CGT is chargeable. Generally speaking, CGT is not chargeable where the asset is gifted to your husband, wife, civil partner, or to a charity. CGT is also not payable on certain assets and includes gains made on ISAs, PEPs, government gilts, premium bonds, and betting, lottery, and pool winnings. Finally, the rules surrounding CGT are very dif different if you are non-resident or non-domicile. Please do speak to us if this is relevant to you. The final item I wanted to pass on to in this section was the use of your home as office. It is possible to claim tax relief for some of the additional household costs if you have had to work from home on a regular basis for all or part of the week, including if you have had to work from home because of the coronavirus. Importantly, you cannot claim if you have chosen to work from home. It is possible to claim £6 per week, equating to £312 per year from 6th of April 2020. And HM Revenue and Customs have also confirmed that if you spend just one day working from home, you can claim the allowance for the full year. This is treated as employment expense on your tax return, or for those of us that don't complete a tax return, you can claim this via the government gateway. This is undertaken by reducing your taxable income by your marginal rate of tax. And as an example, if you're a basic rate taxpayer, it will reduce your liability by £62. For a higher rate taxpayer, £124, and an additional rate taxpayer by £140. For those people that prepare a personal tax return, this can be claimed via your return. However, if you do not prepare a tax return, 
you could create a government gateway account and claim this online. It only takes approximately 10 to 15 minutes. I would like to bring your attention now to the following slide, which demonstrates for the 2021 tax year how it is possible to have a couple earning £41,000 worth of income and avoid an income tax liability. In this scenario, the couple have each earned income of £20,500, which is composed of a £9,500 salary, £6,000 of interest and dividends of £5,000. In particular, at the moment, it is difficult to earn interest of £6,000 in a year, but this is only for illustrative purposes. The salary is covered by the 2020-21 personal allowance of £12,500, leaving £3,000 of the personal allowance remaining. Given the individual salary is covered by the personal allowance, they're entitled to a full £5,000 savings rate. And because they are a basic rate taxpayer, they are also entitled to a personal savings allowance of £1,000. This covers all of their interest income. Finally, with regard to the dividend income, this is covered by the 2000 dividend allowance with the remaining 3000 pounds available from their personal allowance. As well as reducing liabilities within your business, there are a number of ways to reduce your personal tax bill. Firstly, interspouse transfers. You can maximize capital gains and income tax rates and allowances through these exempt transfers potentially being able to move sources of income from one partner to another. Additionally, you could partake in a salary sacrifice scheme, whereby you would exchange part of your salary for payments into an approved share scheme, additional company pension contribution, or other tax efficient benefits, which could include an electric car, therefore helping to minimize your tax liability. I will now move on to pensions. When you take money from your pension pot, 25% is tax-free. Depending on the size of the remaining 75%, otherwise known as the annuity, you might, be, you might pay income tax as you draw down on your pension each year. Generally speaking, when an individual retires and receives their pension, their personal allowance is allocated against their state pension and any remaining allowance is used against your personal pension. The amount of tax you pay depends on your total income for the year and your marginal rate of tax. The lifetime allowance is a limit on the amount of pension benefit that can be drawn from pension schemes, whether lump sums or retirement income, and can be paid without triggering an extra tax charge. The lifetime allowance for the 21-22 tax year is £1,073,100. While most people aren't affected by the lifetime allowance, you should take action if the value of your pension benefits is approaching or above the lifetime allowance. As pensions are normally a long-term commitment, what might appear modest today could exceed the lifetime allowance by the time you want to take your benefits. It may be necessary to take your pension early or to stop contributing into the scheme or plan, even though you have not yet retired. This will avoid your benefits exceeding the lifetime allowance. The test for the lifetime allowance is completed each time you access a pension benefit. If you would like additional financial advice, 
please do let us know and we can put you in touch with some IFAs after today's session. Stakeholder pensions are a form of defined contribution personal pension. They have low and flexible minimum contributions, cap charges and a default investment strategy if you don't want too much choice. Some employers offer them, but you can also start one yourself. There are, however, minimum standards which are set by the government. These include limited charges, charge-free transfers, flexible contributions, low minimum contributions, and a default investment fund, i.e. your money will be invested into this fund if you don't choose one. It helps when thinking of a defined pension scheme as having two stages. The first of these is while you're working. Your contributions are usually invested in stocks and shares, along with other investments with the aim of growing the fund over the years before you retire. You can usually choose from a range of funds to invest in. Remember, however, that the value of investments could go up or down. The second stage is that of when you retire. Once you stop working and retire, you can access money in your stakeholder pension. In fact, you don't have to retire to take the money out of your pension. As mentioned earlier, you could do so from the age of 55. There's a lot to weigh up when working out which option or combination will provide you and any dependents with a reliable and tax efficient income throughout your retirement. If a stakeholder pension is offered through your employer, they will often choose pension provider and it might also arrange for contributions to be paid from your wages or salary. The employer might also contribute to the scheme. The pension provider then claims tax relief on your behalf at the basic rate and adds it to your fund. If you are a higher or additional rate taxpayer you'll need to claim the additional rebate through your personal tax return and if you don't complete a tax return it is relatively simple for us to do so on your behalf. You can also set up a stakeholder pension yourself. The flexibility, low minimum contributions and cap charges can be of particular benefit if you're self-employed or on a low income. There are four key points that I wanted to bring to your attention when it comes to pensions. Firstly, pension drawdown. If you're 55 or over, you may be able to start drawing down on pension benefits now from a personal pension such as a SIP, even if you're still working. Second, there is the annual pension allowance. This means you can invest up to £40,000 in a year into a pension tax-free. Third, employer pension contributions can also be a tax efficient way for businesses to make contributions into directors pension funds and also on behalf of employees as a reward, allowing you to claim a business tax deduction. Finally, unused pension allowances brought forward from earlier tax years can be used to increase your pension allowance for the current year. During this presentation, we've covered some key points for you to consider with regards to whether you have underclaimed on any taxes. During the last year, we've worked with businesses to keep them informed of all of the help available from the government. Plus, we have helped them develop strategies to survive despite the uncertainties they faced. Underclaimed tax is a key area for you to review, either for your business or for you personally. 
Are there any underclaim taxes that you could be applying for? If you would like to discuss any of the errors we've covered today in more detail, please do contact Lisa or myself. We offer a free one hour consultation. I'm now going to see whether there are any specific questions that have been asked. Hi, Gavin um, and Lisa. There were a couple of questions that came in before um, the actual webinar itself, which was the first one linked to the land remediation was um, somebody had asked, I've got some asbestos in my building. Can I claim some, can I claim for this? And is there a limit to how much can be claimed? Um, so yes, um, that's probably a question for me. So the simple answer is yes, you can claim. Um, so if there is asbestos in buildings, you can definitely claim for that, claim for the, the enhanced deduction. Um, there is absolutely no limit to it whatsoever. So whether it costs you £100 to get rid of it or it costs you a million pounds to get rid of it, you can claim for the enhancement. Thank you. And um, second question was, I've modified my plant and machinery to be able to package an item differently. Would this qualify for R&D leaf? Uh, probably another one for me there again. Um, so the answer is potentially a maybe. Um, so if if the work that you've done on that enhancement is, you know, changing the the whole lookout of the industry that you're working on, so it has led to an enhancement in the science or the technology, then yes, you would be able to claim. If it's something which is only useful to you, um, then you wouldn't be able to claim. But I'm probably I'm more than happy to have a separate chat on that one if we've got your details and we can discuss that off of this setting. Thank you. That was all the questions I've had in. I don't know if anybody else has any other questions they wanted to add to the Q&A. Doesn't look like anything else has come in at this stage. If you do have any follow-up questions, do feel free to um, drop Lisa or myself an email or to give us a call um, on the number on the screen at the moment. So thank you very much, everybody. So this is the end of the webinar and we hope you found it informative and helpful. Uh, please do feel free to visit our website, which is www.stca.co.uk for lots of information and support. Also to connect with us on LinkedIn or to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And on-demand recording of this webinar will become available on our website in the next couple of days. So thank you for attending today and goodbye. <laughs>